Hi, and welcome to Archery Ops Podcast, brought to you by Gold Tip Arrows and Beastinger Stabilizers. On each episode, we talk to top experts in archery and bow hunting about what it takes to shoot better and hunt better, target after target, hunt after hunt, shot after shot. I'm your host, Tim Gillingham. Let's roll. Okay, uh, episode four of Arrow Ops, uh, brought to you by Gold Tip. Uh, we have a pretty exciting guest. I'm really excited to uh, get to know our guest a little bit better. I've met him a little bit at trade shows, uh, watched some of the stuff that he does. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, Pedro Ampuero. He's a Spanish bow hunter, does a lot of cool stuff, you know, stuff that we all dream of, like hunting ibex and our golly sheep. And, you know, he just kind of goes out of his way to uh, hunt some really cool adventure trips. Um, welcome, Pedro. Thanks. Thanks all for having me, Tim. I'm yeah. super excited about this that you are doing because you know I'm not a huge fan of yours. Every time I ask you for questions, you always reply and you solve my question, but typically you give me a couple more problems to think about. Yeah. So it's always great <laughs> to talk to you. Yeah, we're in the process uh, trying to solve all those steep and deep cut stuff. I've, I'm working with a couple guys. So um, Pedro is from Spain. He's a uh, a very renowned European bow hunter does a lot of, uh, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I just got off a roe deer hunt, you know, that's uh, pretty unique to the European uh, arena. Um, you do a lot of Ibex hunting. I know he called me last year. He had a little bit of a glitch on an art. Was it an Argali hunt? I get the yeah. Marco Polos and Argalis mixed up. Yeah. So a Marco Polo, it's basically an Argali. It's a subspecies. So there is like a bunch of Argalis subspecies and marco polo is the name of one so it would okay. be like uh, which one is the most which one is the rarest one they are all pretty rare they're both so, pretty rare. okay well i know yeah, like, no, there is like there is like a lot of argalis like there will be i don't know how many subspecies but they're like eight for example oh, okay. so it's not like yeah i didn't know only, that yeah so there's not like only two that's just so they are yeah. very similar but one is like is like more or less like the American North American sheep. Right. So one okay. is a little bit bigger and all, a little bit wider. One is more brown. One is more white. They live in different countries, but basically it's the same animal. Man, that's interesting. That, that's super interesting. It's like I guess it's just outside of most of our pay grades. So because those are pretty expensive trips, huh? Yeah, it's uh, pretty expensive adventures, and to try it with a bow is just. I think it's. I don't know. I we. We travel, so like we traveled last year to Kyrgyzstan uh, to try to shoot a Marco Polo with a bow. Uh, it has been always a dream of mine. I thought I was ready. We worked really hard. So I spent 22 hunting days, I think it was. So yeah. long, long time. And you are hunting in the winter time. So like temperatures will be, I don't know. I always miss up, I like mess up with the Fahrenheit and degrees, but it was like minus, minus 20 degrees below freezing. We are hunting at uh, like 12,000 feet. Wow. So there's a lot of elevation called. The terrain is like super open. Guides don't know about bow hunting. So yeah. I, 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 I sense that frustration when I was watching one of your videos, hunting Ibex, your frustration with the guides. So we're going to get into that a little bit. But first, let's... Uh, Let's just introduce uh, Pedro and Pearl. How did you, how did you get into bow hunting? I see you in some of the videos with your father. I'm assuming um, he got you into hunting. 
Uh, and where, where did your love of action bow hunting come from? Uh, you know, let our viewers, uh, you know, give us a little picture yeah. of who Pedro Ampero is. So I'm 35. I'm living, I'm based in Spain. And my dad is a, a big hunter. He has been hunting all his life. He started kind of, uh, he bought a bow and started bow hunting, but he had a pretty strong accident in the North Pole. Like he fell off the sled and the shoulder came out. And it took two days for the helicopter to make it there to uh, recover him. So, like, the shoulder hasn't been good since then. So, he just never actually hunted anything with the bow. Mm-hmm. But the bow was at home. And I started shooting the bow when I was 14. Okay. Which, in the United States, the bow hunting was really developed. But in Spain, it was like, there were only, like, just a few guys... Like the internet was starting, like we would order at Cabela's the bow. So it was really complicated sure. to to learn. So it was like a slow learning learning curve. I remember that I spent like one year and a half uh, with the handheld release grab on the wrong side. So instead of having like the stick like right here, I will use it like outside here. Yeah. Because I thought it was the right thing to do until one guy sure. told me, like, why, why are you doing it like that? It's for any reason. He's like, no, it, uh, am I doing it wrong? So we, yeah. we were, like, watching pictures of America to try to understand how things work. So, yeah, it was a rough sure. start, but I, I got super hooked with the bow. And since then, every t- I hunt with everything, with the rifle and shotgun and everything. But whenever I can, I try to hunt with the bow. Yeah, I, you know, I, I grew up, you know, saying kind of, you know, we grew up hunting as kids. I mean... You know, in the United States, there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, grew up as that was their primary you know, food source. I guess in Europe, they're they're more interested in 3D printing meat than actually uh, harvesting it. So uh, you see all this crazy stuff now and you're like, what is wrong with people? You know, it's like yeah. they don't even accept their place on the food chain, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember growing up, we, we never bought meat. You know, the meat that we harvested was always... Uh, what we ate, you know, and we hunted with rifles, but, you know, for me personally, it just got to the point where rifle hunting was just crazy. And, and bow hunting was like more hunting them in their natural element. And it was way more, more of a challenge, you know, and I grew up in Wyoming and I never even, I killed my first elk. I went to live in Alaska for eight years. So, um, and then I came back and I killed my first elk. Uh, I think, gosh, it must've been somewhere around late nineties, you know, early 2000, I shot my first elk and it was hard. I mean, it was difficult, but you know, with every difficulty, it's just very gratifying. And I imagine, you know, all those frustrations, I remember taking my wife hunting a couple of times and first couple of times it was easy. Right. And then, you know, she had a little bit of, you know, challenge and you realize she didn't really like it as much as I did. And so, you know, to me, that's what makes, the good times good is the bad, right? I mean, that's, it, it's always fun. These adventure hunts that, that test your, they, I would say they test your metal, you know, they test. And I think that's important for men. Right. For men, especially, I think it's important to, you know, one of the, these hunts where we go to Alaska or you go to Kyrgyzstan or wherever you're out there completely out of your element. And sometimes, you know, you just learn, have to learn how to survive, you know, and, you know, put one foot in front of the other and and just keep it going. So, um, I know you've been named, but I've, somebody told me you you were named European Bow Hunter of the Year. 
Is that true or or I mean but they featured no, you I'm, as I'm not sure. Like like we so back then we started like promoting bow hunting because we were young sure. kids and we started filming and doing this and that and until the point that I was able to work for Kuyu and I mm -hmm. quit my engineering job and we okay. also started like a production company. Okay, and we good. have been producing video for, I don't know, for like a bunch of years. And we used to have a TV show. Now we do all, only YouTube, but we we have been very active on producing and trying to promote bow hunting because in Europe, it's a very special, like it's hunting. Anti-hunters are way stronger in Europe than in America. Right. Actually, there is a lot of countries in Europe that bow hunting is illegal. So it's a slow process to try to convince yeah. I remember, I remember Don Bowden uh, from Croatia. He was saying that they, they had the president all, of Croatia all on board to uh, legalize bow hunting, and then like the president of the Archery Federation undermined them, and you know basically said it was unethical and blah blah blah. So yeah, it's a, and Sweden's been trying to legalize bow hunting for a while. They rifle hunt, but they, they don't. Yes, you know. So it, they the European Bow Hunting Federation is doing a great job. And in Spain, we are super lucky because we can bow hunt. There is no, like, barely no regulation in terms of, like, limits or whatever. So it's very easy to bow hunt. So we are extremely lucky. Okay. But other countries are more complicated because we have to understand that some Central European hunt, uh, countries, the goal of hunting is, like, conservation and management. So that's the goal. And what is, like, in Germany and Austria, like, what is the most efficient way to control game? So rifles. So bow is not like in America that we see bow hunting as recreational. How we make it harder. How we give more, the animal more chances. How we are able to spend more time hunting. It's like, no, no, we are not supposed to have that much fun. We are here yeah. to manage wildlife. Right. So no, although it's know. really complicated to understand the bow and the how powerful they are and how like I have right. done a few seminars to trying to explain that actually the bows the arrow goes through and that it feels different. So the fact that the animal runs a hundred meters doesn't mean that it's suffering. So right. it's a slow process, but I think there is more okay. and more people getting hooked into it. So no good. Good. We we sure appreciate any you know all the help we can get there. You know, it just it'd be nice to see that more at a, you know, Right now, you really only have two or three strong points, strong holds of bow hunting. You know, like U.S., you got uh, Australia, and you got South Africa. That's you know pretty big in it. But other than that, I mean, I don't know that there's any really in the rest of the world any big places for bow hunting really. So we have to understand that, like, as for outfitters and for locations to promote hunt, uh, bow hunters and have bow hunters, it sucks because a bow hunter is just a nightmare. You have a, a guy with a rifle, it comes, he shoots the animal in three right. days, everyone is happy. Yeah. You bring a bow hunter and he's like, oh, oh man. Yeah, we had um, a, one of my friends uh, won a doll sheep hunt in a, in a drawing up at the Utah Expo here couple years ago and the outfitter didn't want to take him bow hunting and he's just like well screw you he said I'm, i'll give you the tag back and the guy's like no 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 they don't want their hunter success rates to look bad it's just they commercialize it so much that you know it's not a, necessarily about hunting or i'll hear a story of a guy who who gets a chance to go on a stone sheep hunt and 
doesn't even get an opportunity. And, and I made a comment on a post one time in this that if I paid 50 grand to go on a stone sheep hunt and outfitter didn't show me a legal sheep, there's one of two things wrong. Either they're they're giving out too many tags or that outfitter sucks. But uh boy, they beat me up over that. But I mean, that's that's just my opinion. But uh but it's just yeah, that's kind of the culture. They want the easy dollar, you know, it's easy to bring a rifle hunter in, close the deal, get paid, and move on to the next guy. And and we bow hunt because we want the experience, you know, we want the success and the failures. Because at the end of the day, when we have success with failure, it, it means a lot more, you know? So, and anyone that is traveling internationally, the only advice I would give is just bring the bow. Like, because we are tempted, we, you spend a lot of money on a trip and you are like, okay, I'm going to bring the bow, but just in case, I'm going to bring the rifle for this last few days. But as soon as that guy or that Peter sees the rifle, he's like, oh, Let's yeah. hike with this guy for a couple of days, and on the third day, he's going to grab the rifle. Right. It'll happen. And they're going yeah. no, to force you, especially in Asia. They're going to be like, no, we need the rifle, and they're going to do things wrong to push you to bring the rifle. So when you show up on those on those trips and you only have a boy, like, yeah, I have 20 days on yeah. holidays to be with you guys. I like, they hate you, but at the end, they, they understand that sure. that's how you okay. like to, to do it. So I don't know. Well, good. Let's get into, you know, the, 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 we've got several topics here. You know, we want to talk about how to plan an adventure hip trip, you know, some, you know, like an Ibex hunt or, you know, a trip to Spain or a trip to, you know, Kazakhstan or something, because that can be a very, you know, big deal, you know, for somebody from the United States. Uh, you know, there's logistics to overcome. There's language barriers, you know, cultural food. I mean, I, I seen one Ibex hunt, you got pretty sick, you know, and, you know, how do you, you know, you know, first of all, how, you know, when you start to think about planning something like an Argali hunt or a, you know, a Marco Polo or even, you know, I don't even know, like, I guess it's kind of a, the SCI crowd, right? You know, all that stuff is a little so, bit flowing down there. I think, uh, like, as a Spaniard, like, since we don't have such wild places in Spain, I mean, like, we have beautiful hunts, but they are most, like, day hunts. So right. we are more used to exploring internationally to travel to different countries. And especially I love like the cultural and discovery of new things. And new, I love that. But I think it's important for anyone that is planning a hunt to kind of grow a little bit on your experience. Because those hunts, there's some really cool things, but there's also some a lot of frustration because you get there and sometimes the guide has never bow hunted before. The terrain is really complicated. The animal, you know, like, so don't start with a Marco Polo hunt. Let's start with Spain, which is a country that has mountain game, but has a lot of experience with bow hunters, has a lot of experience with guiding people. So you are going to get used to that and then start exploring because some of the countries have been in so many places that I'm the first bow hunter ever, which it's cool, but it also it's way harder. So if, if you start with that, you may not enjoy that. So basically, what you're thing. yeah, what you're saying is you need to be pretty like. So I'm sure there's a liaison, right? There's an outfitter or a a booking agent that that speaks your language or English or whatever that can really like relay this stuff down to. Because I like I said, I watched a couple of your videos and I sensed the frustration where you're just trying to like. You let go back here and let me do the hunting, you know. And I just need you to. We we a lot of us feel that way. Like, you know, I'd rather hunt by myself, right? 
You yeah, I'd rather prepared. make them. I'd rather make the mistakes. If if something goes wrong, I'd rather blame me. Yeah. Than going back home and saying like, if I would have done the thing that I thought, you know, like if something goes wrong, I want to blame me. I don't want to blame the guy. Sure. So. Yeah, you're up there bow hunting. The guy's puffing on a cigarette, and you're like, "What? What are you doing, bro?" <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and they're peeking over, like uh, you know, like like peeking over uh, yeah. the skylines. Yeah, like with bow hunting, it's so important to peek right. over slowly. Right. Wait, the animal needs a lot of people. They don't understand that the animal needs to be broadside. Right. So I have got guides say like, "Shoot it, shoot it!" Like, I'm gonna shoot it. I'm not an idiot, but. It needs to be broadside. It cannot be facing away, but they're used to the rifle and they see it so close. Yeah. That, you know, you may shoot an animal at 80 yards and they will get back home, uh, back to the camp, and they will say, no, Pedro missed at 30 meters. It's like, no, it wasn't 30 <laughs> meters. <laughs> I also missed at 30 meters, but you know, like they are, yeah, you for know, them, yeah. anything, anything under 100 meters is super close. To them guys, yeah. So, yeah. So I always like to like try to, I give them one or two days. It's like when you hunt with your dogs, that for opening day, you need to let the dogs run and have their hunt or whatever. So they relax. And after a couple of days, like, okay, now let me do how I like. And if I mess up, but as long as you show me the animals and I know what I want to do. And I know, and, and some of those people think that they have a lot of experience, but their seasons are shorter and some of those guys might be happily hunted for a couple of seasons. So they don't have as much experience as we do because we hunt a lot every year. We have been hunting for 20 years, you know, like, so right. they right. think that everyone is like a really bad hunter. So if somebody was, if somebody was wanting to do like an Ibex hunt or, or an Ergali or something like, what, what would your recommendation be? Would you have them say they probably should go to like SCI and, and talk to some outfitters or is there a place they can go, um, you know, for these, you know, I call them those adventure hunts. Like I, one of my friends sent me a, a video of, from Australia from, they went up and hunted uh, fallow deer in Bulgaria. And I thought, man, that, oh, yeah. that looks super fun. And, um, yeah, I have seen that video. Yeah, unreal the amount, unreal the amount of follow-ups. I I wrote because uh, one of them is Ben Sayers, a friend of mine. And I was like, was was that hunt fenced? Because like I cannot believe the amount of follow-ups. Like no, no, free range. Like it's nuts. I know it's crazy, but you know it's just like you always think you see that kind of stuff. But I would only I only I'm only aware of it because you know. One of these guys from I just posed some questions because they hunt a lot of fallow deer down there in Australia, and and I've got several people on my staff that shoot them every year, and it just looks looks like a pretty cool animal to hunt. And um, but I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, where do you start? I mean, the internet probably connects a lot of people in that regard, but uh, yeah, I think the inter the internet and there is like a, a few outfitters in in America that are like the, they really know what they're doing. So I think connecting through the internet with the end outfitter from the country, it's risky because you may get a better deal, but at the end, the hunting agencies in, in America, they are going to be able to transmit better your needs and your and expectations from the hunt. Right. Because right. Oh, yeah. it's not just about, I want to shoot and collect a trophy. Like It's also like how I want to collect that trophy. Right. Because some hunters are more like, I just want to, I don't have time. I just want to go there, collect a trophy. And others is like, I want to live an adventure. 
And you have to transmit that to the hunting agency because it's like if you guys come to Spain, I don't know, there's like 50 outfitters in Spain. And every outfitter, it's a little bit different. So the prices will be different. The type of adventure is different. The trifle experience is different, you know? So like, it's important to, I think, to go through the agencies because they actually add value. Some people, the only thing is like, no, they are only adding markup, but they add value because they can know exactly where to take you. And right. I think you increase a lot of your chances. I always tell, you know, you're right. Experience is, is really critical there. I mean, I've been caribou hunting, I think, uh, three or four times. And, you know, I've been put on a river, you know, run a jet boat up a river and got stuck for five days and no caribou and then blown into places kind of the same way. And so this last year we went up to Alaska and my main, my main thing that I tell people is this, if you're going to go caribou hunting with a bow, either drive the haul road so you have lots of ability to move around or when you hire an outfitter, make sure they can move you around if it gets slow because that's going to be key to your success. You only got seven to nine days. You may lose three of them to, to weather. You know? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's good advice. Um, yeah, you know, you want to really, you know, to our listeners, you know, you really want to do some serious research. Don't take a lot for granted. You just because you watch somebody go, you know, I watched one of your moose hunts that looked like a really good experience that you and your dad had and you guys did a great job filming it. And I've been moose hunting two or three times. I lived in Alaska for eight years and I've literally only killed one moose. And we went up a couple of years yeah. ago. We went up a couple of years ago, two hundred miles west of Fairbanks on a river and it was nuts there was people everywhere and you know it's just one of them things is there's no guarantees they still call it hunting and we did take one moose um but the rut was a little bit late but it's just crazy the amount of people there because you know these these guiding agencies or outfitters will just throw people on there and these guys were on these guys ended up on the same sandbar we were camped on we were we had boats so that we could be mobile and they were floating. Well, they were on this sandbar, but they're they're just a, a stark difference between outfitters, right? So our guy guided this river for the last 20 years, right? So he had gas stashed, he knew the he knew the terrain, knew the he knew the uh the routes, the alternate routes. And he's coming in, picking us up, flying us back out. And these guys are sitting here and their guy won't come pick him up because he's scared to death because he has to have bluebird weather to get from Fairbanks, pick him up and all the way back. And and so that's just another example of, you know, asking the right questions. And a lot of times we don't really know what questions to ask. So, um, yeah. So, like, for example, when, when you mentioned the moose trip that it went great, it was our second trip for right. the Yukon moose. So the first trip we spent 15 days, I only saw one bull. So yeah. like we often see like the movies and the films are like, oh, that's easy. And yeah. especially the moose, like when they come into the call, like, no, those animals are stupid. You just go into a river and you meet yeah. a few calls and they come running. Yeah, and, that's what the video shows, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, we have to think the amount of people hunting moose every year, like there is hundreds or I don't know if thousands of people hunting moose all around North America. So yeah. out of those thousands, there's always every year 10 videos of the moose coming in. But right. there is a lot of people that they don't even see the moose. Yeah, so elk, it's... elk's kind of the same way, you know. It's like we hunted a lot of years as kids, you know, and when I was a teenager, we hunted elk every year. I never killed one with a bow, right? <laughs> and 
you know, we got close a couple times, didn't know how to shot. Of course, that was pre-rangefinder, so we missed it. We probably missed a couple or didn't take the shot simply because we didn't, you know, it was a 50-yard and end game, right? Slow bows and guessing yardage, right? And, uh, but then you watch Primos and you think it's easy, right? But people don't <laughs> understand, you know, they're hunting on a, a, a private ranch where they don't have to deal with other people. And there's lots of high bull to cow ratio and, and it's different if you like I draw I drew a tag this year and I'm gonna do try to film it a little bit myself, but I don't know. I just for me the filming just takes the fun out of it for me. But I I, I like the finished product, you know. When I went with the Hamsky guys last year and they filmed our caribou hunt, it's pretty cool to watch in re, in in retrospect and it's good memories and good to share that with people and kind of in you know, incite that fervor for them to want to catch. Yeah no experience at all. So, so that's important. I'm glad you guys like you really go out to do that. I'm glad companies like Kuyu, you know, really get behind sponsoring that and then really. Yeah. I think personally, like the self-filming is super hard. Like I think it takes you out of the experience, but if you bring the right cameraman that he's doing his stuff right. and you just worried on your thing. Yeah. That's, that's the real critical. It's not, it's not as hard because like self-filming is like, you're more focused on, do I have this setting the tripod? I like, I really want to enjoy the hunt, right. but I do also think that when you film the hunt, you actually, even for yourself, you can enjoy the moment better because I don't know you, but like a bunch of times when you see that animal, the animal goes away and like, I don't even know what happened. Just, I was so excited that everything happened so fast that I don't even know when I hit him, what happened. If And you watch the video, like, oh, I didn't saw that female. I didn't see this. And uh, you know what? Like, you can enjoy it. Right. And yep. thing. I get this question a lot. How important are my stabilizers? Well, stabilizer is probably one of the most important things on my bow. Its job is to control the motion before, during, and after the shot. That helps us hold steady. It helps hold the bow still while the bow is loading and unloading from full draw to static. And it also controls the bow against our mistakes, so it makes it more forgiving. With Beastinger, you get a lightweight, high modulus bar with vibration dampening built into the bar. This is very critical in terms of getting the most out of your stabilization system. If you want to learn more, check out bstinger.com. So how far out should somebody, like if you're going to like a place like Russia or you're going to a place like, well, I guess Kyrgyzstan is kind of Russia, right? Or I really didn't no, know. It's so, like, for example, for the Marco Polo, as an example, uh, I really wanted to hunt a Marco Polo, and there are many, many subspecies and many places to hunt. And the reason I chose Kyrgyzstan is because you hunt Marco Polo out of tents and with horses. And the experience is way nicer than on Tajikistan, that, that you hunt out of the car. So, like, same animal, two different countries, completely different experiences. Like, I think, like, the tents and cabins and horses, sure. it just... Completely different experience than hunting from the car and hiking out from the car. So that's why those agents are, are, are critical. And in order to plan the hunt, I think, I don't think you need that much time in terms of like getting the tax and all that, because like the tax system, it's internationally, it's more like private. Outfitters own the tax and they can sell the tax and they show always like availability that in the States is the nightmare. I wanted right. to hunt something in November 
And they told me, now you're asking for November. It's impossible. Like you need to draw and you need to apply. Yeah. And you need- yeah. It's, it's tough. There's so many bow hunters and it gets worse and worse. We used to hunt Idaho and I'd go up there and buy a tag over the counter. And I go, if I killed one, I could go back and buy another one because they're left over. Now they sell out in 45 minutes and you got it. It's crazy. The internet has hooked so many Eastern bow yeah. hunters up to Western bow hunting that there's really only a couple places left that, 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 that exists. And it's just going to get worse and worse. So um no which is great but uh, the more people the the better for the sport and for everyone but it's true that in america it's really hard internationally you call me tomorrow it's like i want to hunt in spain is there anything available we'll figure something out sure in yeah, four, kind of 48 way. hours so yeah, that's that's kind of the way like mexico was when i wanted down there they you go down there and like do i need a tag and like no we get a certain amount of tags and then the tags what did you hunt there uh I, I went down and hunt coos, coos whitetail. Okay, cool. So I may go down and hunt mule deer. I got a, I got a buddy. You know Ray Bunny? No, I, I don't think I mean, I Ray know. Bunny was on a TV show with Jim Burnworth for a while. Okay, yeah, I I, I know Jim. But, yeah. but Ray is a big hunter. He's, he just got off of a muskox hunt, and he bought a little ranch down there and kind of helped the, another kid that inherited a ranch build this ranch up for bow hunting, and Man, they got some slammer deer down there, big mule deer. Not not a great coos property, but I killed two beautiful. Okay. I killed a 122-inch coos there. It's just a stomp. Nice. It's I went a- to hunt a coos deer, a mule deer to Arizona. Yeah. And my and my buddy was so mad at me because I told him, like, I want to shoot a mule deer. He's like, no, 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 no. It's a deer tag. You shoot a coos deer first, and you will come back and you shoot a mule deer, but the coos deer is more important. And I was like, hey. I grew up watching Randy Ulmer. My dream will be to yeah. shoot a mule deer. Yeah. And I remember I saw I sit down at a waterhole one afternoon, and we had four or five different bucks of coos deer coming into the waterhole at thirty meters. Uh-huh. And he watched me from the distance, passing every single coos deer back, yeah. waiting for a mule deer. And we're like, you, you don't, you. One day you will realize the biggest mistake you have made. Yeah, by passing on the coos deer, but we finally got the new deer, and I was super stoked. Yeah, it's kind of you know those. It's funny the coos deer; they're weird. They come in like the middle of the day, like ten o'clock, eleven o'clock. So n- totally different, probably than the mule deer. But you never really know. But I kind of got lucky. My one of my first coos it was actually my second coos deer. My first, I was by myself, and I was right on the Mexican border, and it was sketchy. To be honest with you, I mean, there's no doubt. As in the middle of a trafficking route there was just yeah yeah and i'm sleeping outside my truck on a in a cot like an idiot without a gun you know and i'm like yeah that didn't last very long but uh but the second time i went down with another friend and we went out i lucked out man first stock killed a beautiful 100 inch coos and and i've kind of spoiled so I've, i've taken three with a bow now and and i know guys that are just renowned bow hunters it took them two or three trips to kill one so but uh, Mexico is a special place. I mean, it's just like any place, you know, if you can go. I hunted with my buddy, uh, Yossity Perkins Killer up in Montana for for uh, elk. A couple of years ago, I finally drew a tag and we were hunting a, a ranch that butts up against public. And I mean, when you have that access to that type of property, the hunting's so much more awesome because you don't have to deal with everybody running them off. And if you're just careful, you can keep them on the property and not run them off. So, but, and I'm sure as you book 
hunts all over the world, it's different things. Like I'm going to Africa in December and do you know who Steve Cobrin is? Yeah, yeah, I know him well. Yeah, Are Steve. you hunting with him? Well, you know, I know Steve really well over the years. He's he shot our arrows and I've had lots of really long conversations with him. He's a very technical He's very technical and it's the guy that has hunted Africa the most. Oh, I think true. like the yeah. number of species he has shot in Africa, it's ridiculous. Um I think a lot of people have the idea of Africa of Africa and hunting in blinds and all that, but the yeah. crazy hunting opportunities that you have around Africa. I have been in some of those hunts that like people don't think Africa is hard, but like when yeah. you have to track an animal for days tracking the tracks. Yeah. It's he, like he tells me stories and I'm all I'm thinking is, man, I'm I there's no helicopters or to pick me up when I run out of water. So yeah, I mean the stories. This guy's nuts, man. He's killed. He, he's killed more SCI world records than anybody in history. And he, he, I think he told me one time he's killed sixty species with a bow that no other white guys kill. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I just had this idea that I wanted to hunt hoodoo. I, I want one time just to you know sitting on a water hole. It's just kind of like whatever. No, no, it's 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 beautiful. Like like to have animals so close yeah, and it's like not, it's, it's not it's not. It just doesn't, you know, those animals sat under the, I never mounted a single one. It just, they didn't mean nothing to me. Right. And so I just kind of pitched him the idea and I didn't know what it would cost or anything. And he's like, I said, I, I want to do a spot and stalk, you know, like you were talking and he and I talked about the past where, you know, free range, kudu, Niowa. Um, I always wanted to shoot a mountain reed buck. I shot a, I had a chance at a mountain yeah. buck when I went to Africa the time before, and they reminded me so much of a coos deer. And yeah. super fast, man. I, I shot I shot at one at 96 yards. He was peeing, and I thought, well, I asked the guy, do you think he'll jump me? And I, I don't know. I said, well, <laughs> he, wasn't even close. Yeah, he wasn't even close to that arrow when it got there, right? So I always thought that that's a cool animal. Um in its natural element and it didn't take him like two seconds. I, he said, yeah, I know the perfect guy. Let me make a phone call. So he hooked me up with his best friend and he's just, it's kind of a friend of a friend deal. And so I'm going to take this guy over. He's my size. You know, this, his friend's about, so Steve's tall like me too. He's probably about six, six. Yeah. yeah. But we kind of, we have a lot of conversations, but his buddy's six, five too. So I'm taking him over a, a new bow tech and, and kind of getting him lined out that way too. So um, we're gonna have a good hunt. I'm I'm excited. It's gonna be in the old uh, like uh, Zulu country that you read about you know, today, and some old cattle ranches over there. So should be a fun hunt. I'm actually really excited about that. But yeah, there's a hundred different ways to hunt Africa, like you said, and there's probably ten different ways to hunt. You know, our golly, but I, I'm with you. I like the experience. I try to book an adventure hunt. You know. Yeah, and every other year I, at least. I hunted a few years ago in Cameroon for Lord Derby Ilan, which is a different two species of Ilan, right. which is completely different. Like you have like the whole neck, like black. It's like probably the I think the most beautiful animal, one of the most beautiful animals in Africa, and the largest antelope actually from Africa. And that hunt, I was guided by a tracker that used to be a bow hunter, used to be a poacher and all that. And to see him track the animals, and, and for some reason when he saw me with the bow, he was like, he was pretty old already, and he was like, 
that's nice that someone brought the ball. Like he was super excited about guiding me and about teaching me and about showing me his arrows and all that. So it was super cool experience. And I remember you say like we saw the Lord Derby with the ball and we I was hugging my my PH like we just made history like this. I don't know how many Lord Derbys have been shot with the with the yeah. ball tracking and this and that and the tracker comes to us and like I don't want to ruin this moment, but I have shot seven with my ball. Like, okay, thank you. Let us enjoy this moment. Like, we, we are super happy. Like, no, no, I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And people like, I, you get in these arguments with people about equipment for for hunting. And it's always the African guy gets on, well, African animals are different. And I'm thinking, dude, I shot my healing with a 440 green arrow at 295 foot a second with a two blade rage. And he made it 40 yards. So I'm sorry, I don't buy that. No, it's true that the African animals have the vitals a little bit more forward. Sure. And it's hard for, at least I, I find it really hard to restructure your brain to shoot more, like right on top of the leg rather than behind the leg. Right. So I, like find that yeah. Yeah. I, I, shot, I find it like really hard to, to, to yeah, think I shot them. That. I shot my warthog like that far up from the back of the leg and about that far back. And that sucker was alive for an hour. I'm like, how is that possible? Yeah, as soon as you are like a little bit back, you just hit the stomach. And it's like, how, how is it possible? Like, like it looked like a perfect shot and for a white tail yeah. will be like perfect. It's going to die right there. And they, they just don't bleed. Yeah. And it's just because you just touched the stomach. Yeah. Paige Pierce just got back and she was showing me videos where she, sh I'm like, Oh dude, that looks like a shoulder shot. You know, it's like, but she's there. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, but uh, well, that's cool. Let's just kind of move on a little bit. Um, you know, when when you know, one of the things that you you called me last year on your your sheep hunt, and and one of the things that people need to be aware of, and and I made this recommendation to you also was when you changing your environment. You know, when I go to Alaska. One of the very first things that I require is I want to target and camp. Okay. I want to bow hunting is different than rifle hunting. Rifle hunting, we can put all our data in a kestrel. We can make the adjustments based on the barometric pressure. But with a bow, we don't have that option. So your your options are this. You either get a lot closer so that the 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 amount that you're off is not going to affect you as much, or you have to have the knowledge and expertise and the equipment to be able to make sure that your bow's dialed in. So what, what what elevation do you live at in Spain? Sea level. Oh, sea level. So you go sea level to 12,000 feet. I can guarantee your sight tape is not even close. <laughs> so. Yeah. so that's that's one of the things I think like when the more you start and like with people like you that you teach and you make the right questions to people, you start understanding things, and it's not just bad luck sometimes because we blame the equipment and yeah. we think that the animal moved and not. You were so I was probably five years ago way happier person when I was going hunting than now because now I know that everything, yeah, has an effect. <laughs> so I'm yeah. not happy anymore because, like, yeah. I know that elevation, I, re I found out that it makes a big change. The how do you call them? Like the mechanical broadheads. They fly, they fly great at 50 yards. But when you go to 70, 80, 90, 
you have to start giving uh, like extra meters to make sure that they. Yeah. That's one of the reasons. I, that's one of the reasons I shoot this this thorn broadhead. You see that? It yeah, just, you're so super, super happy with that. Yeah, it eliminates a lot of them variables, you know, and it has this. I always look for practice systems. Okay, I'm actually going to play around with a little bit different thorn broadhead this year. It's more like your conventional, but it, it's still a rear deploy, but it just deploys a little bit different way. Um, but I asked the guy, it's like, okay, like like you said, ignorance is bliss, right? The less you know, yeah. the less you, you – you, the problem is guys will go up and miss, and they don't even know why they missed. You know, they just like, well, I just missed. But they don't know. Maybe their rangefinder didn't read the slope correctly, didn't – you know, maybe – their sight tape wasn't on. I hear this all the time, and I, I guys are going to Kodiak Island or something. They never take a target, okay? They never recite their bows in. And I'm like, how do you really, seriously? And it's, I remember one time we went to Kodiak Island, and I went out the first day. I checked my bow in Anchorage, right? And it was cold, and you assume that maybe they are density. And I was hitting about that low at 100 yards, but I thought, oh, cat's manageable. I don't need to worry about that. So we went hunting the day after we got there, right? And I think, I can't remember if we can hunt the same day on Kodiak. Maybe you could. I, I Either way. But the first day we were hunting, first year I missed them. And it was a long shot, but I normally don't miss those shots. But end of the day, I killed this buck. And I had actually shot another one right at dark, marked it took off so we were going to hunt back to this other buck and in retrospect what had happened is is i'd shot this buck at a, at 100 yards okay almost exactly 100 yards and pinwheeled him but what had happened is is my bow because of the air density was hitting low but the rangefinder wasn't cutting it enough so the two yin yin mit yang and i i hammered him right so the next morning before we take off i know something's wrong i just i get a sound i just I knew it. I knew it. my spidey senses were screaming, right? And so I I went out and I I checked my bow and they all treat me like the anal retentive pro, right? And I got it dialed in. And sure enough, man, I mean, I'm 20 or 30 to 100 on the 30-yard side of my tape. It was four yards wider, okay? And I just carry sight tapes with me, okay? And so I put the tape on and Andrew from Hamsky was coming and he, he always shoots pins. So he's only got pins out to 70 and shooting XT hunter, bigger arrows and, you know, fixed blade broadheads, you know, he's an engineer, of course, you know, and it's just baffling to me how he doesn't like get into the technology side of it. But I made him shoot an arrow before he left. He missed the whole target because he lives at 6,000 feet in Denver. Right. So he had to get his pin sighted back in. And when he went back home, he said he had to put him right back where he's where he's at. So as, as a bow hunter, I think that's one of the very critical things. If you're going to go to a, you know, hunt Marco Polars, or you know you're going to be taking long shots, you had better have a way to get your bow sighted in, in the terrain you're in. And I don't mean, I watch all these videos and I see these guys warming up for their hunt with field points. It's on a bad target. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. Yeah, no, I I have learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah, and often like you travel to these places and like in Kyrgyzstan, like we build up a target, but to sight in at a bow at a hundred yards is not easy. Like you need time. I mean, you you are an excellent shot. 
but it's still uh, time. yeah, you still need time. Imagine like uh, people that we are not professional, so we need more time, and it needs to be uh, there needs not to be no win, and you don't have to have to rush it because at least for me to when you have to sign in hundred, hundred ten or whatever, you need time, and sometimes it takes days because some days you are not feeling great. You should the following day and you fine tune it. So if you're playing with a box, this is small with some blankets that every time you miss, you break the arrow. Like it's really hard. And, and that day that you need to tie in, it's windy and the horse, are, the horses are ready. And they are like, we need to move. It's like, so you start playing with, yeah. you know, like with uncertainty and then the, so you see the animal and you know that you have to sight in three more yards and then you have to compensate from the broadhead and you have to take one off and the angle and this is like, I don't even know where, where to sight. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's the hardest thing I always tell people. With all my knowledge, I still find the most difficult thing hunting Western big game and you're dealing with a 25, 30 degree slope, you know, is knowing where to set your sight. Now, I will give credit where credit is due. The Leupold RX-5 is probably the best rangefinder out there right now for that. It's still not 100% correct, okay? It, it is not, it's not right. It's still off enough where you can make bad shots on animals. And so I'm, I've been trying to, you know, put a little effort into working with a guy that, uh, and try to get this in a, you know, in a platform that's very usable to the, to the end bow hunter, because before I go on my 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 elk hunt this year, it took me 16 years to draw. I guarantee you, I will have if if we don't figure this out, I will have spent 20 or 30 hours down on the mountain dragging my target up and down and shooting these slopes in because I want to know how to set my sight on those extreme shots. If I get one shot and it's 80 yards at 35 degree slope downhill, I want to know that I can make it. I don't want to guess that I can make it. I don't want to take a chance because if you see on my board back here, it says preparation equals confidence. Okay. hundred percent agree. And if you're going on a hunt, like, you know, like you did over there for Marco Polo, man, I would do everything in my power to make sure that outfitter knew I need a reliable target system. Maybe give them some ideas on how to build that target. Yeah. But no, no, yeah. I think it's probably like if I will have to do that now, I will prepare a little bit different in that. Thing. Yeah, and and maybe even pick your broadhead based on, you know, which one flies most like a fill point. I mean, I I've only found one. Um, I'm assuming this broadhead right here. I'm just just an assumption based on some experience that this broadhead here, every time that I've shot a forward facing blade like that. It seems like it's very efficient. Plus, you look at this thing's got a cone tip on it, right? Yep. It's more aerodynamic. If I shoot the standard thorn with this head on it, okay, it's got a lot more drag out on the front of that head. So if I take, I don't know if you're familiar with like a bare match point. They're kind of old, uh, but they're basically a long field point, right? So I want to be able to tune my arrows with the same length point as I do my broad hit. Um but I also want a practice system so that like I had to recite my bow in uh, caribou hunting last year. So I had a foam target, but it was passing through it into the tundra and it was just. It's like, a nightmare. Yeah. It's, it's nightmare. Like, you need to have the right condition, which sometimes right. you don't have right. those hundred yards without elevation. And I think like 
many people like they don't understand that because we everyone teaches like about the compensated angle and that it's the bottom part what it affects but no. when you're shooting long distances the arrow is travel traveling this so the, the drag is completely different that when they only travel 20 yards. If the arrow travels 100 yards, the yeah. drag is completely different. And if you change elevation, the 100-yard drag of that arrow is going to be completely different. So yeah. you're going to have to compensate different. So yeah, and I mean, like, sometimes you drop back and it's like, I don't even know. I, th I can make technically the shot, but I don't know what yardage to put on my bow. Yeah, I learned all this stuff training for, you know, European Pro Series archery and OPA that's really steep and deep shooting. And I learned a lot of stuff for bow hunting. But the problem is, is, you know, I have all this data on this. this yeah, you sent me the data and I was like, I'm yeah. never going to understand that. Because you were like, but, but the problem is, is in a hunting situation, it's not practical, it's not fast enough, right? So, you know, when I bow hunt, what I do is I, I take that closest range finder that I can use and get the you know, Archer's Advantage system is a ballistic profile they put into the rangefinder, but it's a very rudimentary ballistic profile. So I'm working on a system where we can actually perfect that and allow you to shoot it in or do, you know, true it up like we do a Kestrel with rifle shooting. And that way we can, you know, we don't have any guesswork going on. So, but then I'll carry a little arm guard cut chart that basically tells me in a percentage how far off it is at that approximate distance. So if it's one or 1.5, percent off then it's still close enough to make the kill right so the further yeah. you go the distance wise the steeper you go the more problems you're going to have but we better keep moving here we're we're uh burning up time but uh from a cultural standpoint and a food standpoint when you go on these these hunts i mean i i you know i would think that that could be a little bit of an issue you know i i remember getting sick at an archery tournament in guadalajara because i decided to drink out of the the Gatorade cooler. Yeah, that was a bad one, dude. I, if I was hunting, I'd have been down for the count, man. But uh, yeah, so typically when I travel, I have never been concerned and I actually never bring like a dry, dry freeze meal or whatever. I like to experience the food and the, and the culture uh, with water. I have never been worried at all about water. Until last year, when I was hunted in the States, uh, I saw all my buddies having like the little things to potabolize the water and all that. And I was like, why you guys even potabolize this? We're in the middle of nowhere. What's it? Just fresh water. Like, no, you have to be careful. And I was like, maybe I have to think about it. And I think it was like a few months ago, uh, I had to do some checks because I wasn't feeling great after Kyrgyzstan. I, I mean, it was a lot of time, high altitude, like, Actually, one of my cameramans had a, a high altitude pulmonar edema or something that we have to bring it down. So it was a long extended hunt, and I think that wore me off. But my stomach wasn't great, and they checked, and I have something in my body that they cannot figure out that it might go to the lungs and to the liver. And when the guys started saying, like, what do you mean? Like, I may have a parasite in my lungs. Like, okay. yeah, but we cannot find them. We're like, oh, that sounds great. And the, actually, the doctor was like, have you ever drink compromised water? Have you been in what type of places do you go? What type of things do you eat? Like, just mark every single box because I have every, been everywhere in the last month. Sucking down the ivermectin, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah so I, you know, I'm trying to be more careful now. Yeah, I always, you know, whenever I have questions like that, I always go to experts. I go to guys like Aaron Snyder. Um, 
I carry a little SteriPen. So I think that SteriPen yeah, uses ultraviolet uh, and it can, you know, if you take the time to make sure your your water bottle is sterilized or, yeah, I think if I went to like Kyrgyzstan or, you know, Steve Cobreen, you know, he's crazy, dude. He, he, he said his next thing he wants to do is go to the Amazon. I said, dude, have you ever read the Lost City of Z? I was like, you couldn't get me to go into that jungle. No way. But he loves that kind of stuff. He's got that quintessential, I call it the British Explorer mentality. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would want really good. I bought a really killer MSR filter. I got two or three filters here just as a just as a backup for just, you know, emergency stuff. You know, if something were to happen, you know, we didn't have water, we could at least purify it. But yeah, you know, there's there's you know, they call it beaver fever. Anytime there's beaver in the water. I mean, hell, we're we're drinking out of a lake last year and there's beaver splashing there, and you're thinking, um, I hope this thing works. Um, <laughs> you know, sheep are another thing, you know, when you have, you know, in the West, especially here, we got a lot of sheep herds out and, you know, you gotta be careful, you know, I mean, it's my buddy. I remember yeah. going, one time he said, yeah, I, he said, I just bellied down and drank my fill at this Creek. And then I walked upstream and there's a dead cow laying right in the middle of it. I'm like, Oh, oh dude. So yeah, you gotta be careful with that stuff. But yeah, so, like when you go to these places, like the water tastes like goat, the food tastes like goat, like goat, the tea, everything. So you just like, I don't remember last time I posted a photo uh, eating marmot and a buddy of mine that is a bed is like, you know that the marmots are probably the animal with most disease in the world. And it's like, oh, it tastes like chicken. It tastes actually pretty good. But you have to be careful what you eat. But ho hey, hopefully they find whatever they have. The settlers ate a lot of prairie dogs is what I'm saying, what I've heard. So um so so now, you know, do, do you carry some freeze-dried stuff with you when you when you no. go? No, never? Not for food. I, I no. I just I just yeah. I like to yeah, I like I, to experience that thing, like mm -hmm. sure. So just be like uh, nothing, nothing you cannot kill with vodka in those places. So <laughs> that's why they drink vodka. It kills it kills all the stuff. <laughs> One of my guys had a backpack, and I was all the all my day worrying about what the hell he brings in the backpack, and he just brought a vodka bottle with cups, not a jacket, not a just a vodka bottle. And we are like all the time changing layers, changing things, and now the jacket, and now this, and now this down jacket, you know, like, and the guy just was bringing a backpack to carry that vodka bottle, so. Yeah, it's like my, my father-in-law, my, my wife's from Argentina, and eventually I'm going to get to go hunt down there a little bit, but uh, it's a little different too, but uh, I guess like I've never seen him drink anything but wine, like ever. And I'm like, he can't possibly be drinking enough wine to hydrate, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just a different culture, you know. And yeah, you got to be prepared for a little bit of everything. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on board, and I think you know we might be able to uh, have you on a little bit later. And because this is just getting started, we like to keep it pretty topic oriented, uh, so people can follow along, and you know, we can. As we see you kind of do some of your other hunts, maybe we can do a, another topic that's more specific on, you know, a type of hunt that uh, somebody here in the States or around the world might want to go on. And and like I said, I always try to go to the experts and I mean, appreciate you taking the time to video and share the stuff that you do do. 
Um, you guys can, you know, see Pedro Ampero. What is your your YouTube channel? Yeah, you put Pedro Hunting Adventures and on YouTube, and we have we I have two channels, but one is in English with the main movies, and another one is more for Spanish to try to do some stuff in Spanish. But the main one is just Pedro Hunting Adventures. Okay, and we'll we'll get some stuff out, you know, some promotional materials so you can you know share this podcast and you know it'll help you know build your brand and you know help spread this information out. I think if you know if our viewers will will listen and subscribe to these podcasts and and you're going to pick up something you know you're going to you're going to have resources to go to and you're going to have you know you're going to question yourself you're going to say well maybe i should do that maybe i shouldn't do that uh um maybe i shouldn't take that for granted you know and and you know we can always learn more you know i'm sure the next time you go you know hunting marco polos you're going to be a lot more prepared than the last time you did it and yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I was happier not knowing anything and just yeah. having a little bit of luck. But yeah, yeah no, I, I do think that people should like uh, definitely explore the opportunities abroad, especially on those years that people don't draw a tag. There is some hunting internationally that are not as expensive as some people may think. So like, I don't know, for five grand or six grand or three grand, it's a lot of money, but like, it's not like, Right. Crazy, like it would be like hunting in Canada for most people, or whatever. Sure. Uh, and I think it's uh, cultural wise to know a new country, new new species. And one of the things I love the most, like after traveling around, you hunt with so many people, and everyone hunts different, and you learn from everyone. And that's sure. really well, interesting. Yeah, I mean so, that's that's not a. I mean, you, there's most people that I know that live in Texas. You know, if they want to hunt, they got to pay twenty five hundred dollar lease a year. So. Um, out west here, we're a little bit more uh, blessed with a lot of public land, and you know we can thank you know the founders and, and Teddy Roosevelt and some of the people in the past for really securing that you know for us. But uh, hunting is a big lobby in the United States, and there's a thousands and thousands and actually millions of people that actually pursue it every year. So thank you for coming on board with us, uh, Pedro, and look forward to maybe talking to you in the future and. Good luck on your hunts the rest of the year. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for everything, and thanks a lot for helping so many of us get yeah. a little bit better. I, you know, I hope to continue to do it. I enjoy this. It's a lot of fun to interact with some different people, and I look forward to having some guests on that are that are experts in their field. I mean, I got a guy in, in Australia that's killed, I'm like 400 water buffalo with a bow. You think he knows a thing or two about penetration? So we're going to have him on with talk a little bit about that and uh you know there's a lot of perceptions and there's also some alternative realities so thanks again for you know coming on board and uh, i appreciate having you on uh one of our early episodes of uh, arrow ops and again good luck the rest of the year thank you hey before you go there's a great way to get even more info and tips Follow this podcast and check out Gold Tip on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. And as always, start tough and stay true.